earnestly seek to commend yourself to God as an approved worker who has nothing to be ashamed of, handling the word of truth with precision. We're glad you're joining us for today's program, A Word from the Word, with your host, Pastor Tom, who will unpack for us the richness and beauty of the Bible's original languages as they bear on key words and concepts from both Testaments. Our hope is that your walk with God will be strengthened and deepened, and both your understanding and application of God's Word will be enriched, and you'll be drawn to love it more and more each day. And now, here's Pastor Tom. Hello, friends. Thanks for joining me on A Word from the Word. We're now up to session 25 in our series, Oh, That Verse Means That. It's hard to believe there's this many misunderstood or misapplied scripture passages. Well, we've been examining a slew of popular Bible verses we believed meant one thing, but are fast discovering they actually mean something quite different, aren't we? Today's session is, What is the Unpardonable Sin Anyway? And we'll take a closer look at Matthew 12, 31 and 32, along with the surrounding passages, as well as parallel passages in two other Gospels. If you missed any of these sessions, just go to faithtalk1360.com and search the menu for local program podcasts. Once again, friends, I'm going to reinforce a statement I've been sharing. The Bible really does have a story to tell us. In fact, it's crying out, screaming out to tell us its story. But sadly, we pastors, teachers, and preachers, as well as average Christians, make even force them manipulate the Bible to tell our story, whether knowingly or unknowingly, I'll still say, shame on us. And once again, I'm going to drive home another point I've been making. Second Peter 1, 20 and 21 tell us the Holy Spirit is the author and inspirer of our Judeo-Christian scriptures, our Bible, friends. So shouldn't we be respecting the Holy Spirit as we read our Bibles? Isn't God's word worthy of more respect rather than just cavalierly spouting out what we think a verse means? Well, friends, our goal today will be to deconstruct these curious passages of Scripture and realize just how important it is to include reading the segments before and after them to get a better handle on what Jesus is trying to teach us and especially uncover if or how these passages spoken in the first century relate to us Christ followers in the 21st century, in the here and now. So friends, let's proceed with our topic under scrutiny today with these steps. First, let's examine the texts involved to gain a handle on just what Jesus says to the religious leaders who are publicly discrediting his source of power. We'll see just how important it is to scour the details concerning the setting in which Jesus makes his statement. Second, we'll rule out several sins that have been suggested as candidates for the unpardonable sin. Here we'll discover that we can't simply and arbitrarily decide for ourselves which sins we deem atrocious enough to qualify as unpardonable. This will also help us see just what the unpardonable sin is not. I've often taught that at times it's helpful to find out what something is not to better enable us in our search to find out what it is. Third, we'll deduce from these first two steps the best definition to answer today's session title question, What is the unpardonable sin anyway? 
Here our goal will be to arrive at an answer that best fits and aligns with the evidence we've mined from the scriptures, evidence extracted from the nearest contexts to the broader context, including Jesus' adversarial relationship with the Jewish religious leaders. I call them the JRL. Here we'll also call attention to some of Jesus' scoldings of the JRL as the self-appointed spiritual caretakers of national Israel's religious community. Fourth and finally, we'll answer the big question on many of our minds, can this sin still be committed today? Friends, from my past experience with a co-worker during my employment in the mainstream corporate world, as well as from a recent lunch fellowship with a friend, these friends confided in me that they thought they may have committed the unpardonable sin. Well, let's get started. Our first text under scrutiny is found in Matthew 12, the pertinent verses being 31 and 32, where Jesus says, Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven, people, but blasphemy against the Holy Spirit shall not be forgiven, and whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Now, although Matthew's account in context is the longer one, Mark and Luke also record this incident. Mark 3:28 through 30 says, Truly I say to you, again, Jesus speaking, all sins will be forgiven the sons and daughters of men, and whatever blasphemies they commit, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, because, they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Luke 12.10 briefly states, And everyone who will speak a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him. Now, friends, before we even stroll outside the periphery of these particular passages, the preamble to our first step will be observing a few key things said by Jesus that drive us to minimize the damage of misinterpreting them or misperceiving them. First, we observe that Matthew 12.31 begins with, Therefore, when we see the word therefore, let's find out what it's there for. This entry word demands we look before this verse begins at the verses preceding it, so we get a handle on the setting of Jesus' words. Another word for setting might be context. In other words, the immediate context of Jesus' words. This holds true for all three gospel accounts. Second, we observe that there are three near-equal phrases here. In Matthew, it's, shall not be forgiven. In Mark, it's, never has forgiveness, and amplifies his phrase with, but is guilty of an eternal sin. And in Luke, there's, it will not be forgiven him. And third, Mark adds a short descriptive comment that the others don't, because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Mark propels us on a trajectory to investigate the reason with his word because and also puts us on a trajectory to figure out who the they are he's referring to. 
Once again, friends, we've got to slap on our detective's cap, pull out our pocket magnifying glass, and strap on our first century sandals and conduct our investigation like Bereans, carefully scrutinizing the scriptures to ensure we're being led to the right conclusions. So, now guided by step one, let's investigate the surrounding verses of Matthew 12, 31 and 32. We learn that chapter 12 begins with that repeating thorn in the Pharisees' flesh, Jesus battling with them over the Sabbath, and if he or his disciples have violated their Sabbath rules. So, read chapters 12, 1 through 8, friends, and hear the stand Jesus takes. Then in the midst of verses 9 through 21, we read this, But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him, Jesus, as to how they might destroy him, because he healed a man with a withered hand in the synagogue. Notice that their adversarial relationship with Jesus escalates. In verses 22 through 29, Jesus leaves the synagogue and wanders about healing many others. Evidently, the Pharisees followed him around, and soon the crowd brought to him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. We can just feel the Pharisees seething when Jesus healed this man, because they witnessed the crowd asking, "'Could this man be the son of David?' The Pharisees knew exactly what the crowd meant. Could this be the Davidic Messiah prophesied to come for the Israelites? So they retorted with, This man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. In verse 24, Jesus then rails back at them in verses 25 through 29 with his defense, which includes, If Satan is casting out Satan, he has become divided against himself. And by the way, friends, Jesus referring to Satan here confirms that the Pharisees' nickname of Beelzebul meant Satan. Jesus corroborates this in verse 27 with, And if I, by Beelzebul, I cast out the demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? And then the clincher comes in verse 28 with Jesus saying, But if I cast out the demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Friends, this becomes the contextual build-up to our texts under scrutiny, verses 31 and 32, which Jesus prefaces with 31. The one who is not with me is against me, and the one who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven, people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the one to come. Phew, that sounds pretty final, didn't it? Notice, friends, that the Pharisees couldn't discredit Jesus' actual miracles. After all, they witnessed many of them. But to quash the crowd's hope that Jesus was the expected Davidic Messiah, these Pharisees had to discredit where Jesus' power came from in verse 24. Also notice that from verses 25 to 30, Matthew highlights an ongoing dialogue between the Pharisees and Jesus. So their accusation occurred while they were in the presence of and dialoguing with Jesus. Interestingly, after Jesus' statement under scrutiny, the dialogue continues where, in verse 34, Jesus calls the Pharisees, "'You offspring or brood of vipers!' And then adds, for the mouth speaks from that which fills the heart, clearly indicating that the Pharisees believed and felt what they said from their inmost being, their heart of hearts. 
In verse 38, Matthew tells us that some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign or a confirming miracle from you. Really? They just saw two miracles, but their hearts were resistant to the meaning of behind Jesus' miracles, that they authenticated he was in fact their Messiah. Okay, friends, step two helps us rule out several sins that have been suggested as candidates for the unpardonable sin. Sometimes murder is proposed as the unpardonable sin, but this can't be the case, as blasphemy is described by Jesus as a tongue or verbally articulated sin. In other words, even though it expresses what exists in the heart, Outwardly, it is expressed through words. Recall Matthew twelve thirty two: Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the one to come. Recall the story of David committing adultery and having Uriah the Hittite murdered in Second Samuel 12. Nathan the prophet came and convicted David of his dual sin. When David confessed his sin and repented, Nathan told him that the Lord had put away his sin and that he would not die. True, David was disciplined for his sin. Nevertheless, it was still forgiven. So scripture plainly teaches that murder is not the unpardonable sin. Adultery is sometimes proposed as the unpardonable sin, but the same argument against murder fits adultery as well, as the story of David's dual sin of adultery and murder demonstrate. Interestingly, Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 calls attention to at least 10 sins for which the believers there had been forgiven, and adultery was in the list. So adultery cannot be the unpardonable sin either. A third proposal for the unpardonable sin is blasphemy in general, without respect to the Holy Spirit specifically. In our Matthew text, however, Jesus himself says in verse 31 that every sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not. And reiterates this in the next verse, verse 32, with whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him. Paul again confesses in 1 Timothy 1, 13 and 14 that before his conversion, he was a blasphemer, a persecutor and violent aggressor against the fledgling church. But he was shown mercy and the grace of Jesus was more than abundant toward him. So, friends, blasphemy in general is ruled out by Scripture as a candidate for the unpardonable sin. We're coming to see that the unpardonable sin must be placed in a category all its own, aren't we? And so it can't be murder, adultery, or even blasphemy in general, can it? Well, friends, a fourth proposal offered by some is a person's persistence in unbelief. But this proposal has two strikes against it right at the outset. First, we must admit the unbelief persists until the end of a person's natural or physical life will result in being finally and eternally lost. But this persistence is a result of willful disobedience and the masses loving darkness rather than light, per John chapter 3. We would certainly not say that everyone who fails to respond to the wooing and convicting of the Holy Spirit is committing the unpardonable sin. At any point in a person's life, they may respond to the Spirit's convicting work, repent and be given the right to become a child of God, just as John 1, 11 through 13 clearly indicates. 
So again, mere persistence in unbelief cannot qualify as the unpardonable sin. And second, in Mark's account, Jesus says, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. The masses of unbelieving people at this time would be committing an eternal sin and therefore could not be granted repentance and forgiveness nor become born again. Well, friends, our being detectives of the divine up to this point, searching the scriptures in the spirit of the Bereans, and carefully investigating both the pros and cons of what the unpardonable sin is and is not, now permits us to advance to step three and formulate a working definition that best fits and aligns with the evidence we've discovered in the scriptures. So, friends, let's knuckle down and put our mind to the formulating of the best definition of the unpardonable sin we can, guided by all we've sincerely and conscientiously investigated. Occasionally, it's helpful to simply begin by consulting a standard dictionary. Naturally, we'll need to check this against the meanings of biblical words to see if they agree. Here we find the customary definition of blasphemy as the act of insulting or showing contempt or lack of reverence for God or irreverence towards something considered sacred. The Oxford Dictionary adds the act or offense of speaking sacrilegiously about God or sacred things, profane talk. The biblical meaning of our term blasphemy is really not too far off from these standard dictionary definitions. Blasphemy appears some 59 times in our New Testament. With the exception of the writer to the Hebrews, every other New Testament writer uses this word. Its range of meanings include speaking evil of, being evil spoken of, reviling, in other words, speaking abusively or in an insulting manner, and slandering, which is the literal meaning of the New Testament Greek word. Some more literal translations of our Bible use words and phrases like railing and abusive language. Railing meaning protesting strongly and persistently or raging against, criticizing severely, violently disagreeing, or taking issue with. This is precisely how the Pharisees acted toward Jesus, didn't they? After all, friends, right here in Matthew twelve fourteen, they conspire as how to kill him. And in verse 24, they accuse him of being empowered by the ruler of the demons. In Mark's account, the scribes tell the people, Jesus is possessed by Beelzebul. And they say Jesus has an unclean spirit. So, as I said earlier, let's put our minds to arriving at an appropriate and fitting definition of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And as the wheels of our minds are turning, let's keep in mind the setting we examined earlier. From the texts in their context, it becomes clear that blasphemy against the Spirit was a definite, singular sin which was committed by the Pharisees during Jesus' lifetime and earthly ministry. This sticky wick, friends, leads me to consider that perhaps this sin cannot be committed in the same way that it was committed in the first century, while Jesus was alive and the target of the Pharisees' ire. We'll delve into this more in our final step, step four, shortly. Let's remember that the context of these three gospel accounts helps define blasphemy against the Holy Spirit as attributing Jesus' power to Satan, in essence labeling Jesus as being Satan incarnate instead of God incarnate. 
I believe this is why in Matthew's account Jesus specifically states, But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Friends, the most restricted context in Matthew twelve twenty-two through twenty thirty-two suggests that Jesus said these words directly to the Pharisees. So, in one sense, we could define blaspheming the Holy Spirit as saying Jesus did his miracles by the power of the devil. The Pharisees, as representing the religious rulership, may also be seen as being representative of the Israelites as well. So the kingdom of God coming upon them may extend to the entire nation. The Pharisees and religious echelon were certainly not stupid. They were quite aware that Jesus' miracles served to validate his words and ministry as the Messiah who had arrived. The religious leaders, the JRL, therefore, attempted to discredit Jesus' messiahship by publicly declaring his miracles were performed by the devil's power and not the spirit's power. In so doing then, their declaration became blaspheming the Holy Spirit. This is unforgivable, friends, because it strikes at the very heart of God's redemptive work in Jesus and simultaneously strikes at the very nature of Jesus' teaching, testimony, and sacrificial act of dying on the cross for our redemption. Jesus functioned in the power of the Holy Spirit during his entire three years of ministry, fulfilling the divine plan of God, his Father, so as to provide a sacrifice for our sins. But the Pharisees were attributing all this to the power and activity of Satan. This qualifies as blasphemy, friends. Let's remember that the Pharisees and scribes spoke against Jesus more than one time. They were so hardened against him that they continued to associate him with Satan. Friends, remember that these were the resident biblical experts here. They were not religious ignoramuses. To properly understand what Jesus meant by blaspheming the Holy Spirit, we must recognize and admit to the scriptural knowledge of Jesus' opponents. Jesus expected the religious leaders to know the scriptures. In other words, our Old Testament. Blaspheming the Spirit does not arise out of ignorance. People who claim to know the scriptures yet fail to recognize Jesus as Messiah and then openly reject him are standing on perilous ground. So, friends, blaspheming the Holy Spirit is not the occasional bad thought or episode of anger against God. These may be sins, but they sure don't qualify as persistent, deliberate rejection of Jesus' ministry and then openly attributing his actions to Satan himself. That could be a definition right there, couldn't it? Another possible definition could be the ongoing hardening of your heart against the Holy Spirit who is trying to lead you to repent of your sin and believe in Jesus. Additionally, it's an issue of the heart that is manifested outwardly in our words. The implication here, friends, is that the one who commits the unpardonable sin is not accidentally saying some particular set of words, but is willfully rejecting Jesus and despising the word of God. So, as long as one rejects the Holy Spirit's bidding, they'll never find forgiveness, as Mark's account clearly indicates. Friends, remember Stephen's sermon to the religious leaders in Acts 7.51 before he was stoned? He said, You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. Notice, not once or once in a while, but always. 
Thus, the unforgivable sin of blasphemy against the Spirit is not a wayward word uttered in a moment of anger, but rather one who has hardened their heart against the convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit and refuses to repent of their sin and turn to Christ in faith. This, then, is committing a sin that never can be forgiven. It includes rejecting the Holy Spirit's testimony to Jesus, so becomes blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Remember now, as long as one remains in this condition, that judgment hangs over their heads. So, friends, step four now asks, can this sin be committed today? Actually, what we really want to know is how can we respect and honor this teaching that brings its truth and application into our 21st century? I don't believe we can commit this sin the same way it occurred in the first 21st, ah, the first century. That would require Jesus' physical presence and accusing him to his face, which we can't do. However, having said that, I do believe there's a principle here. Someone who lives with defiant irreverence and continually and actively rejects in word and deed the Holy Spirit's convicting ministry and who never reaches the point of sorrowing over their sins qualifies for blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, we're at the end of our program, which will close with an email where you may write me. The podcasts of all these sessions are posted at faithtalk1360.com. Just search the menu for local program podcasts. And please keep in mind that A Word from the Word is a listener-supported program. Please consider financially helping to keep this program on the air with your kind support. Just email me for the details. Well, thanks for listening today, friends. And remember, Jesus loves you. I'm Pastor Tom with A Word from the Word. Friends, if you would like to let Pastor Tom know what this program has meant to you, email him at a word from the word at minister.com that's a word from the word at minister.com